This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Historia Ecclesia, episode number 14. Today we continue our series on J. Gresham Machen with a lesson titled, The Basis on Which Machen Fought, the Bible. This course is taught by Dr. Daryl G. Hart, who is an elder at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Here is Dr. Hart. Okay, good morning. Um, this is probably wondering when this series will ever end, um, or if it has already ended since there's been some gaps in the um, presentations. But this is week 10 of the course uh, series on uh, Machen, the fighter of the good fight. And I have outline again for today's uh, lesson. Um, so we have been looking at the battles that Machen fought, just to sort of uh, summarize where we've been and come, and come so far. Um, we've looked at a number of the battles that Machen fought, uh, going back to the question of Christ and culture at the time of his um, service in the YMCA during World War I. We looked at uh, the questions surrounding ecumenicity and intolerance at the time of um, 1920 and the um, plan of organic union in which the Presbyterian Church was um, uh, debating, discussing when Machen was a commissioner in 1920 to his first General Assembly. We looked at Machen's critique of liberalism, his fight with liberalism, especially with his book, The um, Christianity and Liberalism, probably his most important work, published in 1923. Uh, 1925 was the time of uh, Machen's critique of what I um, designated false optimism with the, the report of the um, Special Commission of 1925, which was uh, given the task of discerning the nature of the controversy in the church, the causes of controversy in the church. Um, 1927 to 1929, we looked at Machen's fight with tyranny, both tyranny within the American polity and his um, unusual politics, we might say, since he was a uh, states' rights Democrat, and we don't encounter too many people like that anymore. Um, Although I guess the Tea Party would, they might claim that in some way, but I'm I'm not sure if you're reading Ayn Rand that you can really be a uh, a states' writer, writer. and also the, the question of tyranny within the Presbyterian Church and the reorganization of Princeton Seminary and the way that um, that event played out, which led to the founding of Westminster Seminary in 1929. Then in 1933, we looked again at another battle with liberalism, which was the controversy over foreign missions and uh, Machen's eventual uh, founding of the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions, which was, which was what led to his trial and conviction for uh, violating his ordination vows. And that trial was in 1935. And then lastly, two weeks ago, we looked at the fight with sentimentality and Machen's um, ongoing struggle with evangelical Presbyterians in the Presbyterian Church, who were, because of their understanding, perhaps of sentiment, of Christianity, of emotions, of experience, were less inclined to fight the errors of, of liberalism in the church. 
Um, and so the, the last battles, particularly the ones in the 30s, of course, were the ones that led to the founding of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And um, in two weeks, uh, the series will finally run out at the end of June, God willing. And um, so in, in two weeks, I hope to conclude the, this series and talk about the importance of the fights in which Machen was engaged for understanding the OPC, especially its early history. Um, but this week and next week, I want to explore the basis on which Machen fought, and this week particularly looking at um, his appeal to Scripture, and uh, particularly the way um, his own biblical scholarship informed his critique of liberalism and the various battles in which he fought. And then next week, I hope to look at his appeal to the confession of faith or the creed of the church, as well as his understanding of Presbyterian polity. So um, it shouldn't be a surprise to think that Machen, as a Protestant, as a Presbyterian, as a Reformed Christian, would uh, be appealing to the Bible. The problem, of course, is that the liberals also appeal to Scripture. Um, so we need to think about the ways in which Machen read the Bible. So first of all, we need to think about this first point regarding the Bible and history. Um, and especially this Machen's overwhelming um, theme in his writings of appealing to the facts of the Bible. And the facts, again, are kind of interesting. As we recall back to the Auburn Affirmation of 1924, which was the liberal effort to try to say that there was room in the church for Presbyterian liberals. And in the Auburn Affirmation, they made this distinction between the facts, between the doctrines and the theories of those doctrines. Um, and so there were doctrines in the church, such as the virgin birth, but then there were theories of how the virgin birth could be understood. And they were arguing that there should be room for a variety of theories in the church. And, and so they also, I think, pretty sure they used the language of facts, doctrines, and theories. And, of course, in 1925, um, at the time of the Scopes trial, there was also a discussion of the facts of evolution versus the theory of evolution. And are the two the same? Um, and so Machen was using the, the, the word facts a lot in his understanding of the Bible. And, in fact, this first quote I have here comes from a piece that he wrote for the New York Times. Um, he, was, he was invited, as I mentioned, uh, to testify at the Scopes trial, and he um, was able to find excuses for not going to Dayton, uh, among them being that he was um, going to attend to his mother in Seal Harbor, Maine, and the other being that he was not an expert in Old Testament, so he couldn't really qualify as an expert witness the way William Jennings Bryan wanted to use him. But, as was the case after 1923, when Christianity Liberalism became a very popular book, Machen was invited oftentimes to, to speak in public forums. And the New York Times, running up to the Scopes trial, invited two people to square off on the nature of evolution. And so they invited one article on what evolution stands for now, and they asked Machen to write the opposite side. And what Machen wrote instead, as you can see at the end of this quotation, was what fundamentalism stands for now. He avoided the issue of evolution because he really wasn't concerned with that per se. He thought there were implications of that, but a far greater concern for the church um, and with liberalism was the nature of salvation and not the nature of creation. And so he wrote this piece, What Fundamentalism Stands For Now. And, and at the beginning of this piece, he has these 
these assertions about the facts of the Bible. The historic continuity of the Christian religion is based upon its appeal to a body of facts. Facts about God, about man, and about the way in which at a definite point in the world's history, some 1900 years ago, a new relationship was set up between God and man by the work of Jesus Christ. There is one advantage about facts. They stay put. If a thing really happened, it can, sorry, never possibly be made by the passage of time or by the advance of science into a thing that has not happened. New facts may be discovered, and certainly we Christians welcome the discovery of new facts with all our heart. But old facts, if they really be facts, will remain facts beyond the end of time. The sheer factual basis of the Christian religion is denied by a large body of persons in the modern church. Indeed, at this point, we find what is really perhaps the most fundamental divergence in the religious world at the present day. More fundamental than differences of opinion about this truth or that is the difference of opinion about truth as such. Historic Christianity maintains that the Christian religion is based upon a body of truth, a body of doctrine which will remain true beyond the end of time. Pragmatism, and you could really put here liberalism as well, maintains that doctrine is merely the necessarily changing expression of an inner experience. Now, some might think that Machen was um, guilty here of a naive view of facts and objectivity, and there's a long debate about Vantillian presuppositional apologetics and the way, it, the way in which it stands in relation to Princeton's uh, more evidentialist apologetic, and I'm not going to get into that. And I think it is clear here to see that Machen is appealing to a kind of an objective view of, of truth and reality um, that might seem to be at odds with, with some of presuppositionalism. But he's also making some, a, a, a very basic point that, that shouldn't be missed in questions about apologetics. He's trying to show that the Bible taught facts and that the great message of the Bible depends upon history, historical facts that are recounted in the Bible and are interpreted by the Bible. Now, fundamentalists like William Jennings Bryan, who was the lead prosecutor at the Scopes trial, was trying to defend the facts of the creation account. But again, this was a side issue for Machen. He was trying to defend defend the facts surrounding the Bible's account of Jesus Christ. And he believed that the New Testament was bound up with certain historical assertions about Christ And therefore, Christianity was not a religion of ideals or morals, but a religion in which God acts in history. Um, So it's not just a question of biblical authority, even though that was something that Machen defended, but not in the lengthy way that other fundamentalists may have. More was at stake than merely the biblical authority, because liberals also thought that the Bible was authoritative. What was at stake was what did the Bible authoritatively reveal. Um, So in order to understand the importance of this point, it seems we need to remember what liberals were doing to the Bible. So this is where this little point here, sub-point of liberals fudge facts. We tend to think of liberals as people who deny the Bible or the truth of the Bible, so the people who deny the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, etc., And therefore, we attribute to them bad motives, and uh, we we make them out to be um, villains. Um, And that may may be. Um, But they um, were actually trying to do something that was positive. They were trying to save Christianity. 
Um, they, the reason why they fudged facts or fudged doctrines is because they were trying to preserve the Christian religion in the modern world. What kind of Christianity could modern men and women, college-educated, who've been reared on science, reared on electricity, reared on the, all these modern appliances, how could they possibly believe this, this religion taught in Scripture? Well, one way to do that is try to, try to interpret the Bible in a certain way. Um, and so Machen saw rightly that liberalism, and this is how he defined it, since it was bound up with naturalism, which is basically the denial of any entrance of the creative power of God in connection with the origin of Christianity. So basically, liberals were trying to deny that there was a miraculous power in the universe, that God was imminent in the universe. God was imminent working out his ways and plans uh, for the evolution and the progressive advancement of creation and civilization and evolution and all this stuff was always going upward and onwards. This was the progressive era, after all. So you... God was at work in creation, but he didn't need to intervene directly. He didn't need to intervene miraculously to do anything because God was at work imminently in the creative um, energies of the world. So God, the way that liberals said that Christianity originated was not by sending his son or by revealing himself necessarily because these miraculous accounts in Scripture just can't happen. Science tells us that. Um, God is, is a different kind of God than the one that traditional Christianity has understood him to be. Instead, again, God is imminent. Truth emerges from within religious individual experiences or within the creation or within history. But again, the basic point of liberalism is to deny the, the creative power of God, which means a denial of the miraculous. And what's bound up with this, too, is, is the idea that man... Sinful man does not need miracles. What man needs more than miracles is guidance. And this is, a, this is a, I think, a really important point that Machen is, is seeing in his affirmation of facts. Again, he wasn't affirming facts just in order because he had this enlightenment view of truth as static, etc., the way some people criticize old Princeton. He was interested in the facts because of what they meant for uh, the, the nature of salvation. So again, the, the liberal view of the Bible and the way that liberals read the Bible stem very much from the rise of modern science and technological advances. And we need, I think, to sympathize with liberals to a certain extent, not simply be, to try to recognize that they were trying to save Christianity, but that we ourselves as modern people don't believe in miracles, really. I mean, we, we don't believe what Mormon, when Mormons say certain things about Joseph Smith, we say that's hooey. And when Roman Catholics talk about miraculous healings or um, the founds of the Lords or wherever, we don't, we don't believe that stuff. We believe that God, God's creative power in intervening in that way has ceased in some way, that those signs have ceased. It's miraculous when God saves people, yes, when the Holy Spirit works on their hearts, but we don't necessarily believe in miracles uh, and that kind of miraculous power anymore. So in some ways, we kind of have a liberal spirit in and of ourselves. We believe that miracles happened at one time, the way that they're recorded in the scripture, but not necessarily the way that, they, that other Christians or people who claim to be Christians say that they still happen. Um, that may be controversial, but I mean, we, we can talk about that if I 
leave any time, but maybe if I don't leave time, we don't have to talk about it. So, liberalism is trying to defend Christianity in a scientific age, and they're not denying Christianity, they're trying to save it, and the way that they're doing it is trying to deny, is trying to get around these miraculous accounts, accounts in Scripture, especially the ones surrounding Christ. So this leads then to the point, second point here about the gospel and history. Machen counters the liberal argument about um, what Christianity involves, what God has done, the way God saves, their understanding of God with an appeal to history and particularly its relationship to the gospel. In emphasizing history or the facts, Machen is saying that you can't separate the kernel, which is what liberals were trying to emphasize, these ideals of Christianity, the moral teachings of Christ. You can't separate those ideals of Christ, the golden rule, brotherhood of man, from the husk of history. The kernel and the husk are inextricably linked, such as with those unbelievable things surrounding Christ that he was both God and man, that he was born of a virgin, that he suffered and died on the cross and was raised again on the third day. Machen argued that you can't have the gospel without the husk of history. So um, you can see this understanding of history in the gospel way back when, at the beginning, really, of Machen's career as a professor at New Testament. In 1915, he had to give... Uh, inaugural address, actually 1914 when he was given his inaugural address, this essay was published in 1915. Um, and it was at that point that Machen sort of resolved his, his uh, doubts about the ministry and his vocation that we talked about way back when at the start of this series and decided that he could become a minister, which is what you needed to do in order to become a, a, a professor, assistant professor at, at Princeton. Up until that point, he had been a lecturer. So in order to be a professor, you needed to be ordained. He was finally um, willing to be ordained, and he gave his inaugural, inaugural address uh, in 1914, published again in 1915, and it's called, as you can see at the top of the sec on the other side, this, um, this quotation comes from an essay called History and Faith. Um, and I didn't bring again, I didn't bring the book, uh, today, but again, there, these two essays that I've, uh, these quotations come from are handsomely reproduced in uh, that, that selection of es um, collection of selected shorter writings that I've had here before. Um, so, Machen, in this piece, is trying, is trying to show how the liberal view of uh, Christianity and of Christ stumbles over the realities of the history revealed in Scripture. And so he, he contrasts two different views of Christ early on in this address, which I have re, um, re, reproduced here on this, on this handout. Um, so let's, let's read these now. The Bible account of Jesus, which is really what he's also saying, the conservative view of Jesus, contains mysteries, but the essence of it can be put almost in a word. Jesus of Nazareth was not, was not a product of the world, but a savior come from outside the world. There's that intervening of God from outside history to act within history. His birth was a mystery. His life was a life of perfect purity, of awful righteousness, and of gracious sovereign power. His death was no mere holy martyrdom, 
but a sacrifice for the sins of the world. His resurrection was not an aspiration in the hearts of his disciples, but a mighty act should be mighty of God. He is, he is alive and present at this hour to help us if we will turn to him. He is more than one of the sons of men. He is in, right, thank you. Drop the M, in mysterious union with the eternal God. Apologies for my typing. Uh, then it goes on. That, that is the Bible account. It is opposed today by another account. This is the liberal account. That account appears in many forms, but the essence of it is simple. Jesus of Nazareth, it maintains, was the fairest flower of humanity. This gets, in some ways, back to the point about sentimentality. This is a sentimental Jesus, if you think of him as the fairest flower of humanity. He lived a life of, of remarkable purity and unselfishness. So deep was his filial piety, so profound his consciousness of omission, that he came to regard himself not merely as a prophet, but as the Messiah. By opposing the hypocrisies of the Jews or by imprudent obtrusion of his lofty claims, he suffered martyrdom. He died on the cross. After his death, his followers were discouraged. But his cause was not lost. The memory of him was too strong. The disciples simply could not believe that he had perished. Predisposed psychologically in, his, in this way, they had visionary experiences. They thought they saw him. These visions were hallucinations. But they were the means by which the personality of Jesus retained its power. They were the foundation of the Christian church. Now, that may seem far-fetched, but there really were people who taught that. This was, a, this was a popular view of Jesus at the time. And if you don't have a good doctrinal understanding of the Christian religion, and you're kind of a, a moderate evangelical, you could say that hear a lot of truth in some of that and really not, not be all that troubled by it which would explain why people like Robert Spear and Charles Erdman weren't about to get involved with the, um, the controversy and take Machen's side in it. So, uh, but Machen goes on in this essay, back to this inaugural address, so, to try to answer the question, how did the Bible come to depict Jesus as a supernatural, real person? The church <clears throat> added their views, according to the liberal account, to the... To, um, their views of the supernatural to this other understanding, the liberal understanding of Jesus. Um, and so Machen tries to refute this liberal view. And he says there are three problems with the approach of liberals to say that the supernatural is merely added on to this other account to what really happened with Jesus. Um, first of all, he says that you can't separate, and this goes back to this kernel and husk approach, you can't separate the ethical norms of Jesus from the miraculous things, uh, activities in which he was engaged and which he experienced in his life and death and resurrection. Um, you can't separate the ideals from history, uh, the inspiring from the incredible. If you go just textually, linguistically, as Machen was capable of doing as someone who knew Greek very well, and could read the text and could go back to find the good manuscripts, etc. It's hard to find these additions of the supernatural or the miraculous that were inserted to try to make Jesus into this great um, son of God. But in fact, if you go back to the earliest documents, the most reliable accounts, you'll find that these two things are there all the time. They're always together. 
bound together, you can't separate them. And so that's one way that Machen refutes it. Secondly, he says that you can't explain, according to the liberal view, Jesus' messianic consciousness. If Jesus, that is his idea, his understanding, his self-understanding that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, if Jesus was merely a man, a regular average Joe who taught many important things, then why did he think he was God? He was both kind and gracious, and he believed that he was the Son of God to come again on the clouds of heaven. So again, if Jesus really believed that he was the Son of God who would come again to judge the world, he was probably deranged if he wasn't really the Son of God who would come again to to judge the world. So again, this messianic consciousness is a real problem for the liberal account of Jesus because how could this somebody who was deranged be such an inspiring teacher of the good life? Um, we lock people like that up. We don't, we don't um, follow them, devote our lives to them. And then finally, Machen argued in this piece that the natural or the liberal Jesus cannot account for the origin of the Christian church. Um, the ordinary followers of Jesus were very much discouraged after Christ's um, death. And if you look, read Luke 24, the, the account of the road to Emmaus, you can see how bewildered Christ's followers were. They don't even recognize Christ in that account. So how could these feeble, frail, timid, discouraged disciples all of a sudden rally themselves to, tri- to go out and proclaim the gospel and establish a church throughout the Mediterranean world. The liberal Jesus won't account for that founding of the Christian church. It's only explainable if something extraordinary happens, like Christ's resurrection from the dead, and like his own claims about himself, what he had had, um, set out to accomplish. Um, And here I'm reminded a little bit of a, a bumper sticker that I see as I walk to church from the Glenside train station. Uh, bumper sticker says, Thelma and Louise live. Um, uh, <laughs> so it's sort of like appealing to the spirit of Thelma. I know what they mean. The spirit of Thelma and Louise, Louise live. And liberals were basically saying something like that about Jesus. Jesus lives, but it's the spirit of Jesus that lives. But how many people actually devote their lives to Thelma and Louise? I mean, how many people have even devote themselves to FDR or to Martin Luther King Jr.? I mean, th- these are people held in high esteem, but there aren't cults surrounded, I mean, if we want to call them cults or churches or communions, that that are established to to follow people like this. So there's something really incredible, in some ways even more incredible, in the liberal account of Jesus and the Christian church than in the so-called traditional, conservative, unbelievable account, which has all these miracles going on with it. And that's that's a a big point of what Machen's trying to show here, is how far-fetched the liberal understanding of Jesus is. Um, and how much the gospel and the Bible really depends upon this understanding of history and that the gospel depends on God's acting in history, especially his acting in history through Jesus Christ. Um, so he concludes this piece, and I don't, I don't, do I have it here? I don't think I do. Um, in this way, we shall not endeavor to explain how otherwise intelligent persons can stick in a halfway position that is so utterly inconsistent and absurd. Yet popular exponents of of liberalism, he said, with disregard of all logic, go cheerfully on asserting 
that the authority of the Bible lies altogether in the sphere of ideals, while all the time they do regard as essential to the Bible its attestation of the existence of Jesus, and so its attestation of an external fact. In other, in other words, the bottom line was, was Jesus really a historical person or not? Finally, if liberals are going to say that Jesus was a historical person, then the other history needs to come in in some way. So, again, there's no denying hist- the historical basis of Christianity. So this, this leads then to another way in which Machen got at this problem, which was uh, the third point here, the virgin birth. The virgin birth of Christ was a book that Machen wrote, uh, published in 1930, uh, a book that he had probably been working on for 25 years, which is one reason why he would have considered his, it his magnum opus. When he was a seminarian at Princeton, he had actually published a couple of articles in the Princeton Review on the virgin birth of Christ. Um, so it's, it's a very important book to his own scholarly development, and many people regard it as, as, a, as a masterpiece of New Testament scholarship. And um, he basically tries to defend in this, as he had in The Origin of Paul's Religion, a supernatural origin for the uh, accounts of the virgin birth of Christ. Even though it's not widely taught in the New Testament, I believe only two or three places it's really, it's, it's really mentioned, Machen was arguing that it's still very much well attested in all the ancient documents and that it makes perfect sense if you look at all the ways that people have tried to explain the virgin birth away. It just can't be explained away. And so he, this, the, in the end of this book, though, of scholarship, he, he wants to make applications very much relevant to the questions surrounding liberalism in the churches. And so he comes to three conclusions in this book. One, the virgin birth was not a late addition, but had an early place in the first and the third Gospels. So it was plainly taught by the earliest Christians. It wasn't a a late addition, as some people had argued, coming in the second or third centuries. Again, one of these ways to try to explain how Jesus was so great. Oh, we'll make him great by saying that he was born of a virgin. Machen says, no, it's very much there from the beginning. Um, Machen also concludes that if you look at the sources and, and the uh, various um, texts and the history of various beliefs, you will see that the origins of the idea of the virgin birth um, come not from Judaism or misunderstood prophecies, but were, again, with, deeply ba- bound up with the Christian witness about Christ of a very er- early sort. Um, And then thirdly, he says that that the virgin birth did not reflect certain pagan beliefs about gods or about children begotten by gods, which there were those sort of accounts, but Machen's clear in saying that the the Christian account of the virgin birth of Christ was very different from these these pagan accounts. So all of the evidence in this this very long book, almost 400 pages, points in the direction of Christ being born without a human father. Now, Machen concedes it's very difficult for us to believe this. Um, but he said it's not hard, as hard to believe if we consider who Jesus is. And so the main question that Machen concludes the virgin birth, the book, with is, what shall we think of Christ? If you view Jesus against the backdrop of sinful humanity, then you will have a very different understanding of the virgin birth. It goes from being implausible to being all of a piece. 
And he writes, the story of the virgin birth will hardly indeed be accepted when it is taken apart from the rest. But when it is taken in connection with the rest, it adds to, as well as receives from, the convincing quality of the other things about Jesus which the New Testament tells. So again, this is not really a question of the authority of Scripture, which is oftentimes where fundamentalists stop. The Bible teaches the virgin birth, therefore it's true. Machen was arguing that the miracles surrounding Christ were foundational to the salvation that Scripture teaches as well. So he wasn't concerned merely with a liberal view of Scripture. He was concerned with the liberal understanding of Christianity and of salvation. Um, But he does also make the point in this book, uh, Virgin Birth of Christ, that liberals do have a weak view of the Bible. Um, so he, he writes here in the book, what is the modern religion that is founded upon a Bible whose authority is altogether in the sphere of inspiration and not at all in the sphere of external fact? It is not a religion whose... Is, is it, excuse me, I think I, this, this is also on your handout, sorry, um, this quotation. Is it not, that should be, a religion whose fundamental tenet is the ability of man to save himself. Give us the moral and spiritual values of the Christian religion, it is said in effect. Give us the inspiration of the teaching and example of Jesus, and we have all that is needed for our souls. Not for us is there any need of dependence upon the question of what happened or did not happen in the external world 1,900 years ago. What we care, excuse me, what care we how Jesus entered the world, however that may be, his teaching stirs our souls and leads us into a larger life. Again, that's the liberal view. But again, that's founded upon a view of Jesus which disregards the fact that people are born in sin and need a Savior and therefore need someone who can remedy um, their sinful state. Um, Machen goes on. At, at, the, at the conclusion of the book, is it not a religion, in answering this question, what kind of modern religion is this? Is it not a religion whose fundamental tenet is the ability of man to save himself? Jesus attained to sonship of God, and we, if we will only follow him, can attain to that sonship too. The fundamental notion of the liberal religion is that Jesus showed us what man can do. We can all be Christ's if we will only follow Christ's example. That is the essence of this religion of the imitation of Jesus. So again, the virgin birth is bound up with a different understanding of Christ and the salvation that he offers. So then then the second point of uh, this lesson has to do with the Bible and doctrine. It's not just the Bible or the gospel and history, but also the Bible and doctrine. The Bible not only teaches for Machen facts, historical facts, but it also teaches doctrine. And so Machen was very much concerned in trying to defend doctrine, the doctrines of the Westminster Confession we'll talk about next week, but also doctrines that uh, are taught in Scripture. Now, again, he was trying to counter these two views common in the liberal and evangelical worlds of the time. One was that doctrine is merely the manifestation of a Christian experience or a Christian consciousness. So the, the words of the creeds or the doctrines don't matter. It's the experience that matters. And then another view that he was, he was arguing against, and you see this specifically in his, um, 
introduction uh, to Christian liberalism, arguing against these two views of doctrines or creeds. The second point is that Christianity is not doctrine, but a life. So it's not just experience that liberals are holding on to, but Christianity is this life, and that we can all attain to become sons of God if we follow Jesus and imitate his life and pattern. So if we do these good deeds, um, we, will, we will be like Christ as well. And so Machen is, is trying to counter both these views with a, the doctrines of taught in, in Scripture. And so he spends a lot of time um, talking uh, about uh, or appealing to Paul. And so his first book, The Origin of Paul's Religion, is also very important for understanding Machen's uh, views about doctrine and its importance. As you recall, uh, this was his book, The Origin of Paul's Religion, was published in 1922. Um, it was, again, it established him as a, an up-and-coming New Testament scholar. Um, and the point of the book was, again, a scholarly one, but it led to important implications for the life and work of the church. Um, Paul was trying, excuse me, Machen was trying to, to, to address a problem in New Testament study and early Christian history about um, the relationship between Jesus and Paul. So you have Jesus in the Gospels, and you have apparently this, this uh, non-doctrinal religion in the, in the Gospels. Um, and then you come in the New Testament to Paul, and you have all these letters written by Paul, and you have all this doctrine that, that Paul is teaching. And so some New Testament scholars, in order to try to get around this Pauline teaching, would say that um, Paul was the second founder of the church, the second founder of Christianity, but he sort of betrayed Christ. And so they set up this tension between Paul and Christ. And part of what Machen's trying to do in The Origin of Paul's Religion is to show that Paul's religion, Paul's religion was in harmony with the Gospels and with the work of Christ. Um, and so... Jesus really is the founder of Christianity, and Paul is merely a follower of Christ. <clears throat> so he, he, this is one of the, the points that he's trying to do with the scholarship, but also then he's trying to say implicitly that doctrine is of the nature of Christianity, and that Paul's doctrinal teaching is not somehow a side issue that he gets carried away with, but that it's very much following on the heels of what Christ did, what Christ taught and what Christ did. Um, and, and one of the ways that Machen uh, makes the point, I think, quite well about the nature of um, the importance of doctrine um, is the way he contrasts the way Paul dealt with false teachers, excuse me, with teachers in, in Philippi versus false teachers in Galatia. So Paul, uh, Machen argues often that doctrine is a problem because it leads to intolerance in the church. And so People who are doctrinalists tend to be intolerant. They want to exclude false teaching. And this is, of course, one of the reasons why liberals were upset with Paul, because Paul seemed to be so intolerant. But Machen recognized that Paul could be tolerant at times and, other times and have great charity, and other times he would be indignant and seemingly intolerant. So he, Machen contrasts the way he dealt with and showed tolerance in Philippians, but then showed great Intolerance in Galatians. So, Paul, Machen said that Paul's stress upon doctrine did not make him incapable of magnificent tolerance. And you see this in Philippians. 
There were rival preachers to Paul in Philippi. They were preaching a gospel out of jealousy and envy. In Machen's words, the rival preachers made of the preaching of the gospel a means to the, glor- to the gratification of low personal ambition. It seems to have been about as mean a piece of business as could well be conceived. But what was Paul's response? Paul's response in Philippians 1.18 says, Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. So Machen said, recognized, that the way that the preaching was being conducted was wrong. But Paul was willing to overlook the bad motives for the sake of the truth, as long as the truth was being proclaimed. In other words, as long as the right doctrine was being proclaimed, that was what was important to Paul. Machen wrote, Paul was far more interested in the content of the message than in the manner of its presentation. It is impossible to conceive a finer piece of broad-minded tolerance, in this case of Philippians anyway. But when you come to Galatians, you see a different view of Paul and tolerance. And here it's Paul's reaction to the Judaizers in Galatia. And there Paul's tolerance changed into intolerance. Galatians 1.8 reads, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. <clears throat> That's Paul's writing. So why was Paul so intolerant in the case of the Galatians, but so broad-minded in the case of Philippians? And Machen says, his opposition was based altogether upon the falsity of their teaching. They were substituting for the one true gospel, a false gospel, which is no gospel at all. It never occurred to Paul that a gospel might be true for one man and not for another. Paul was convinced of the objective truth of the gospel message, and devotion to that truth was the great passion of his life. Christianity for Paul was not only a life, but a doctrine. And logically, the doctrine came first. So Machen goes on in his writings to talk about, well, what about Paul's relationship to Jesus? Was Paul teaching the same thing that Jesus taught? And Machen goes on to say in a variety of ways that Jesus actually taught doctrine as well. For instance, when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus was regarding the coming of the kingdom as dependent upon a specific event in which he was going to be the chief actor. Um, And Jesus also proclaimed the doctrine, Machen argued, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for sins. That's Mark, Mark 10, 45. That Jesus very much taught doctrine in his ministry. He even tried to argue that if you appeal to the golden rule or the Sermon on the Mount as the teachings of Jesus, that this was still very much predicated upon doctrine, especially upon an understanding of uh, the need for salvation. Because if you took the golden rule or you took the Sermon on the Mount as the model for your life, you would realize how sinful you were and your need for a Savior. So that, that Jesus' teachings... His moral teachings, his ethical teachings that liberals highly valued were still very much dependent upon his satisfying um, the righteousness of God in order to make that way, make that path available to his followers. So Machen believed that everywhere in the Bible, um, uh, doctrine and and history uh, were very much bound up with the understanding of uh, Christianity. Um, And I have here a final uh, word. This is actually not from the origin of Paul's religion, even though I've been talking about that 
with regard to Machen's understanding of the importance of doctrine and how he learned that from Paul. Um, but I have here this, again, an affirmation of the importance of uh, doctrine in it, and history in relation to our understanding of the gospel. In, uh, this is the virgin birth of Christ. I, wrong date. It should be 30, 1930 here. Um, the Bible is a record of facts. Of what avail, without the redeeming acts of God, are all the lofty ideals of the psalmists and prophets, all the teachings and example of Jesus? In themselves, they can bring us nothing but despair. We, we Christians are interested not merely in what God commands, but also in what God did. The Christian religion is not couched merely in the imperative mood, but also in the triumphant indicative. Our salvation depends squarely upon history. The Bible contains that history. And unless that history is true, the authority of the Bible is gone. And we who have put our trust in the Bible are without hope. So again, um, Machen, in his reading of Scripture, uh, found that history was uh, imperative to our understanding of Christianity because in history, God had to act to save sinners. And that was the only possibility of salvation was by God's acting on sinful men and, men and women's behalf. And then Scripture also, though, contains the doctrine, contains the explanation or the account of what that, those historical acts mean. And so in both these, these notions of um, doctrine and history, which Machen drew from his own um, study of the New Testament, uh, this was a very important critique that he registered against liberalism, particularly the idea that liberalism offered a different understanding of salvation. It wasn't just a question of whether Christ would return or when he would return or how the world was created or whether the Bible was authoritative. It went much deeper than that. It went to whether men and women need a savior or whether they mainly need guidance from a great teacher. Um, so that's, that's the basis, the biblical basis for Machen's critique, part of Machen's, the biblical basis for Machen's critique of uh, liberalism and the, and the basis on which he fought. Uh, I have a couple minutes if anybody has a question or comment. Camden? More of a comment. I'd just like to bring up this book by Robertus Ross called The Self-Disclosure of Jesus. It's just interesting. We have another Princeton guy dealing with a lot of the same subjects. It's just a fascinating book dealing with um, the development of revelation over time, particularly looking at uh, how Jesus thought of himself as Messiah. All right. Right. And Machen actually cites that and interacts with it in the origin of Paul's Paul's religion. Um, Yes? A lot of the things that you brought up today kind of bring true back to my boyhood days and some of the struggles that were going on in churches that I was as an elementary school kid. I really don't know how, how much have those arguments survived into this current generation and how many of them just died uh, online of you know, some liberal uh, thoughts of Jesus as the grand example. Uh, has it, has it, it doesn't seem to be as relevant now as it did when I was a kid. I mean, I, my parents left the church, the federal reformed church, because I was being taught stories that were trying to demythologize the Bible. That was the phrase. This is the RCA, I hope, and not the CRC. Federal church. 
Right, but it's probably the RCA, Reformed Church of America, which was the liberal Dutch Reformed, although the CRC is, has its problems now. But. but you were in New Jersey, which is the old colonial Dutch wor- world, and um, that, that's where the Reformed Church of America, um, the older Dutch, Dutch Calvinist church, uh, flourished. Um, so that's probably where it was. I, you know, I, um, I think you're probably right that th- these arguments aren't as, um, as, as pertinent right now, or they're, they're not as much um, talked about any, anymore. But I don't, I don't hear people talking about Jesus that much, really. So, I mean, that would be part of it, whether um, how people regard Jesus. And I think if you, which, is, which may say something in and of itself that people don't talk as much about. Jesus, even though they're Christians and doing a lot of Christian Christian work. I mean, I'm sort of fascinated right now by a lot of the talk of social justice and transformation. And it doesn't necessarily seem that people are appealing even to Jesus as the example for that um, in some way. Uh, that there's, there's more of a, um, a kind of theological argument based on creation or or redemption more generally, but not specifically that Jesus, we're following Jesus, we're following his example. And there, I think that was a stronger strain earlier in the 20th century. I mean, the, the popular book um, from which we got the, the, uh, the wristbands, What Would Jesus Do? Um, uh, what's his name? Help me, that novel. Uh, Sheldon, Charles Sheldon's um, In His Steps, published in the 1890s, which was a hugely popular book. And he, he was the one who came up with the slogan, what would Jesus do? He was appe- this Congregationalist minister in the novel was appealing to people in his church to get them to think all the time about what would Jesus do? And there was kind of a revival of that 15 years ago with the, with the wristband, WWJD. Um, so, and that seems to have died down a little bit, although that would, be an, that would have been an instance where people would have been talking in some ways about Jesus and using him as an example, a doer of good, good works. And I don't remember Machen's arguments being carried out there except for in the pages of the Nicotine Theological Journal. But anyway. um, this will be people it. people like Bergman and Spear react to Machen's inaugural? Did they consider it a thumb in the eye? No. I don't think they... I mean, Erdman would have been there to hear it. I think he would have said, fine. Great. Stand up, applaud. Let's get some cake and punch. <laughs> no, I, no, I don't think they would have. They wouldn't have seen themselves as liberals, and that's what. I, I don't think Machen would have seen them as liberals then. I don't think he ever really saw them as liberal liberals. He saw them as doctrinal indifferentists, and so the difference between a liberal and a doc, doctrinal indifferentist only sort of becomes clear when liberalism becomes a problem, and you need to fight against it. And the people who won't fight with you then sort of reveal their colors. All right, let's um, close with prayer. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historia Ecclesia. If you would like to read resources from Dr. Hart, please visit him online at oldlife.org. If you'd like to listen to more episodes from Reform Forum, you can visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you have a list of all of our programs, including hundreds and hundreds of episodes on various topics in Reformed theology. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at Reformed Forum, Twitter us at Reformed Forum, or even send us actual physical mail at P.O. Box 27422, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19118. 
Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for all of your support. And we hope you join us again next time on Historia Ecclesia.